Proverbs 6, think for a moment about the general theme of Proverbs. Proverbs treats what subject? Yeah, it does. Wisdom and foolishness. What kind of wisdom does Proverbs uh, talk, Proverbs talk about? Yeah, which is what kind? There's a lot of kinds of wisdom. What kind of wisdom are we talking about, Proverbs? Heavenly, godly wisdom. You know, I mean, there's a worldly wisdom. There's worldly knowledge, worldly understanding, uh, worldly education, and so forth. But this is talking about God's wisdom, the wisdom that fits with God's design, God's purposes. So we're dealing with a wisdom that starts with what in Proverbs? Fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord, absolutely. The first step in, in the wisdom in Proverbs is to fear God. Uh, the, we're, not, we're not talking about some uh, philosophy or idea that starts with man. You know, wisdom in Proverbs starts with the Lord. And, and what he teaches. Now, the format of this book is essentially what? Proverbs is presented as a series of lessons taught by whom to whom? Father to a son. A father to a son. That's exactly the way the, the format uh, of the book is, is organized. And uh, that, that has a lot of uh, help for us in our understanding. So we think about it as being like a father to a son, then we learn a lot about what God's intentions are for fathers and sons. I think we... I didn't get enough chairs out here, did I? That's a good problem to have. Um, Alright, so, so if you think about it from that standpoint, what does that teach you about fathers? And mothers? They have a responsibility to teach their children. They are supposed to instruct their children in godly wisdom. That's a primary role of parents. Now, I think that is something parents have to think about. And uh, most of you aren't yet. But think about when you will be, because you have to make purposes already for that. You know, so many parents are very non-verbal with their children. Maybe except when they're yelling at them. <laughs> you know, but as far as teaching and instructing and guiding, they don't do that that much. But that's something very vital in the parent's role. You think about this. Um, what would be the, the, the number one thing most parents would think their job is? What are parents supposed to do to their children? Punish them. Discipline them. Well, does Proverbs say that parents ought to discipline their children? Absolutely. But for every verse that tells in Proverbs that says to discipline your children, you've probably got ten that says to instruct your children. Now, does that mean discipline isn't good? No, it doesn't. It means you need that. But, but do you see how the teaching has more weight even than the discipline? Why is the teaching more important even than the discipline? If you do the teaching right, you won't need the discipline. Well, eventually, 
And that's exactly the point. What's going to happen when your kid's 30? You're going to be able to turn them over your knee and spank them? You know, eventually the discipline, the control, the fear of punishment is no longer going to be a motivation. It's good. That's going to go by the wayside. And it's, it's the lessons learned from the discipline and the instruction where the child is going to take in those principles of wisdom and is going to be able to guide themselves with a good conscience and a good heart toward God. That's our goal. Our goal as parents is not to control forever. Our goal as parents is to teach and instruct and discipline in such a way that the child begins to control themselves and to guide themselves. They really internalize those principles. Now, what does that say then on the flip side for the children? (coughs) What are the children supposed to do? Listen. Listen and... Work. Yeah. And not just learn intellectually, but really take in the godly principles of righteous parents and make them a part of our life. You know, one of the things that uh, you often see in children or in, in say, adolescents is what? what what's the, what, what do most uh, people complain about the attitude of adolescents? They have an attitude of what? Yeah, rebellion. rebellion. That's what that's what people talk about a lot, and it's kind of one of these deals where, you know, as you get older, you get to where you can do more and get by with it, or maybe you kind of throw your weight around and you know you can just kind of bully your way through and do whatever you want to, and and there's this kind of instinct inside of us or whatever where okay now I could get by with this. Now I can do that. Because, I mean, mom and dad aren't working, I'm away from home, or I'm this or I'm that, you know, I'm too big to spank, I don't know, whatever. And so, you know, there's that idea of, well, I'm just going to do what I can get by with. Well, is that wise? You know, is that a good principle, a good model to live by? You know, whatever I can get by with, that's what I'm going to do. You know, what you hope as a child grows up, that they really internalize those principles of wisdom, and they govern themselves by godly instruction. Not that they're thinking, okay, now what could I do? You know, do you ever see two-year-olds doing what they can get by with? You ever seen a two-year-old kind of look to see if mommy or daddy are looking, and they sneak that cookie? You know, they thought they could get it. You know, they forgot that, you know, those chocolate chips really kind of make a mess around your mouth, you know, that kind of stuff. You kind of expect that out of a two-year-old, don't you? But a 12-year-old or a 22-year-old, well, that's still really immature. That's a child that hasn't properly been instructed. So I think that's the overall concept. Now, I, I think in our society, I'm sure in theirs too, We do have to mention, unfortunately, there are times when parents do not teach godly things. There are people who grew up with parents who are encouraged sinful and immoral things. And in those cases, I think young people have to look to godly people who do teach the things that are right. 
You know, it's a shame as parents to be like that. We need to become parents who, who teach the right things and who model the right things. But we're primarily looking to the Lord and to the Lord's people as the example of that. So I think that's the overall setting of this. And we keep seeing my son or my sons, and it's kind of like fatherly talks with his son. Do you have questions or comments just about that kind of introduction to what we're looking at? Okay, well, we've got a number of lessons. Um, here in chapter 6, we've kind of got uh, a diversity of topics and just some, some lessons that he wants his son to learn. So would somebody read the first five verses? Okay. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, taste it, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep, and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the, of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. All right. The, the difficulty in this section is figuring out what he's talking about. What do you think, what, what's the situation, do you think? Is it kind of like cursing? Yeah, that's one possibility. Maybe the best, I don't know. He's talking about like becoming responsible for somebody else's debts. Like co-signing a loan or something like that. Why is that not a very good idea? Yeah. Do you know the idea of co-signing a loan? I mean, like, somebody doesn't have good credit, and they're trying to borrow money, and the bank or whoever says, we don't think you'll pay, so your signature is not adequate, somebody else has to sign this too, and if somebody else signs it, what does that mean for that somebody else? If you don't pay, then the person who co-signed the loan pays. When I think about that, if you're the co-signer, you're expecting the person who got the loan to pay. How does that work out? They kind of like, oh, what you get? They got to help me co-sign. <laughs> well, if you stop and think about it, wonder why the bank thought they weren't a good credit risk. Now, there could be various reasons. Sometimes very young people have a hard time getting loans because they don't have credit established and so forth. But a lot of times it's because the bank doesn't think they'll pay. <laughs> you know, because banks really kind of like to loan money if they think it's a good risk. And so, you know, you've got that uh, thought. And, um, you know, sometimes, well, a lot of times really, Borrowing money is not a very smart idea. You know, somebody who's always wanting to borrow money is probably even by that showing they're not a very good credit risk. You know, uh, they just get more and more debt. So if you're the one who co-signs a loan, you may be in big trouble. I've known people who've suffered really seriously financially because they co-signed loans for people who didn't pay, they weren't really expecting to have to pay. They thought they could trust the person, and now they have to pay for something they don't even have. It wasn't for them. It was for somebody else. So 
If that's what he's saying here, we'll talk about another option in a second. What does he say you ought to do if you co-signed a loan? Save yourself. By? Pleading with your neighbor. Meaning, who's your neighbor? The person you can Yeah, do something. Get, you know, beg them to get you off that loan. You know, don't sleep. This is a situation that's so dangerous, you got to stay awake nights trying to get out of this thing. You know, don't, don't, don't stop at, at any limit to get yourself off that loan to where you don't have to pay that back. Otherwise, you're, you'll be trapped like a gazelle or a bird in a hunter's trap. You know, it'll close in on you. You'll be the one who ends up having to pay. Really, if, if this is what it's talking about, and, and certainly I think this is at least a reasonable teaching for that, I think the principle we ought to go by is this. If you co-sign a loan, expect to pay. Just treat it as your loan. You know, if, 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 you, if you let somebody borrow something, that's giving it to them. If you get it back, it's a bonus, but don't expect it. <laughs> you know, that, that's the best principle to operate by. You know, um, it's just not very smart to, to, to co-sign something. Unless you're just really wanting to give them that. You know, that's okay, I guess. Um, you know where, you know who tends to co-sign, well, in what situation does somebody tend to co-sign them? Parents for their children. Yeah. And often, that creates all kinds of problems. I know several parents who really hurt themselves financially because they signed loans for their kids who weren't responsible and who took advantage of the situation. So it's really something to think about. And uh, sometimes friends do it for friends. And again, you want to be nice to people. You want to be generous. If they need something, give it to them. This idea of thinking they'll pay, I'll just co-sign so they can get the loan is not smart. Here's another option on this. I'm not sure how to decide between these two. But some people think this is talking about more like financial speculation. That you actually put up money for some business venture set. You know, you become, you give a pledge for a stranger. You know, you you say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give so much money uh, investing more or less in this speculative thing, often in those situations, it's the idea of, you know, you'll give up back a lot of money. You know, this will be a good money. That This thing is going to take off, and, and, and whoever invests in this, it's going to be huge amounts of money. Or maybe, you know, they'll pay you big interest. You know, this is something where this, this is going to make a, a killing and they're paying 25% interest to anybody who will loan them money and you're thinking, whoa, I could sure use that. How do those things usually work out? Well, not very well. You know, these get-rich-quick schemes. You know, you hear about this, and boy, this is wonderful, and you got some special opportunity to get on the, in on the ground floor of something that's just going to be wonderful. Well, get out of it if you got into it. You know, think about this. What if somebody's, you know, in this business, 
and they need capital, and they're paying 25% interest. I don't know. Do you know how much interest you make on a, you know, like, what if you put your money in a savings account? How much interest are you getting these days? Point. Two. <laughs> interest. I don't know. Could you get 1% sometimes? I think you can sometimes get 1%, maybe 1.5. I'm not sure. In a CD, could you get that? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, in a CD, you get like CD or something. Maybe. I don't know. Could you get that much? Anyhow, it's not very much. You know, in fact, if you're a really good credit risk and you go to borrow money, what can you get a home loan for these days? Probably four. Four and a half, five, yeah. What can you get a car loan for? Because that depends on the, they might charge you more, charge less interest, but maybe 7%, something like that. I mean, do what? Okay, 10, 12. So what if they're paying 20 or 25% interest for you to invest? What does that tell you? That's a lot of interest for them, for them to be paying. What else does it tell you? They're desperate. They are. Why doesn't any financial institution want to loan them money? So people who are supposed to be smart about those things don't think it's a very good risk. They don't seem to see it that this is going to be something that's going to take off and make a bundle, or they loan them money at 15% and be making a lot more than they make on most of their loans. So there's something wrong with that. But you know greedy people think, Ooh, yeah, man, this is going to be big money. I want to get this kind of money. You know what happens in several of these things, you have to watch it. I've known some situations like this. Right, let's say you've got this business, and you didn't manage it well, or the economy was bad, or it was the wrong business, it's not doing real well. And so you really need some more money for the business. But you go to the banks and they don't think it's a good business. So, so you, you offer a pretty good interest rate. Maybe it's a Christian, so you're offering this to your Christian brothers. Maybe you're offering them, you know, 12% interest. And so you've got several guys who will invest with you because they think that's pretty good. And that's more than they get at the CD and all that. Well, the business is still not going very well. And it comes time you have to pay off those, those you know, loans. Well, what are you going to do to get money to pay off those loans? 15% interest now if somebody will give you the money. Of course, you say, oh, the business is going great. This is going to be a lot. And pretty soon you have to pay off those loans, and now what is it? 18% interest, and you're buying new, uh, you know, gullible people that are like, and you just start, you know, it's a snowball. You're getting more and more and more in debt, always saying, this is taking off, this is going to be great. But all you're really doing is robbing Peter to pay Paul. Do you know that expression? You know, getting money from one source to pay off your debts on the other. You know how long that's going to work? Only as long as there are gullible people willing to fall for this scheme at higher and higher interest. And you see, with the higher interest, you're having to pay more and more money back. So you need more and more and more and more and more. And one of these days, the snowball collapses. There's no money behind it. And somebody gets, you know, their shirt taken. That this would also be a fair passage for that. I'm not sure what she's talking about. But both of those are bad ideas. Co-signing loans and these financially speculative things where you're investing in something that's not a solid something. 
You know, when you got a brother or a friend that's got this wonderful deal, hey, run. <laughs> you know, and if you've got if you invest in that, get out of it at all costs. Whatever. Don't sleep till you get out of it. You know, your mouth can get you in trouble. That's verse two. You know, when you agree to these things, so get out of it. All right, comments and questions on any of that. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you guys know who Dave Ramsey is, a big Financial Peace University guy, and he talked about things like that and said that he, he sort of played with the get-rich-quick scheme and he, you know, gold was going up in value and he found this guy uh, who said, you know, if you, you know, you pay 5K up front and at the end of 90 days, if the value of gold is so much, then it will go up to 50K, just like that. It's like, wow, this is great, you know, just, you know, multiply by 10 in 90 days. He's like, you know, I was just going out of my mind watching gold. He's like, I never watched gold so much. <laughs> those 90 days, and, and, you know, he said, this guy hit 11 for 11. He's like, we thought we had a, he had a dozen in him, but, you know, it turned out that uh, it didn't reach the value, so he just lost 5K like that. He said he paid stupid tax. It has zeros on it if you're not careful. So I just thought that was an interesting uh, thing that he actually experienced. Well, you know, if these were really such good deals, why isn't everybody investing? Yeah. You know, why aren't the banks and the accountants and the people who know those things? It's like, all these things that are, oh, this is wonderful, this is, oh, it doesn't work like that. You know, what about all these deals where, you know, basically, big money, almost no work. You know, you stay at home, you know, only $50 for the kit, and it's going to be easy money with no work. What do you know about those things? It's a farce. Yeah, it doesn't work. Don't, don't. The way to make money is to work hard. You know, this idea of there's an easy way to get rich with nothing. For everybody who claims that, there's almost nobody who's done that. It doesn't work. Don't believe it. Just don't even go there. Yes. Yeah, we talked about the, the side. Well, obviously, I don't have kids, so I don't know exactly what's like a parent, but I, but I assume things. And uh, we talked about the side where if a, if a parent, you know, helps out his, his or her child, you know, on co-signing or something, and we talked about it can end up hurting the parents, which I've seen, and the kids have, but the parents in debt and stuff. And I've, I've also seen that this happen with some members I worship with, and uh, it really hurts the kids, too, because they, they and whether it's a friend to friend or, or a parent to child, because the, the, the one who's... The one who's the main person, not the co-center, but the main person, is and ends up always looking for help instead of learning to be responsible and take care of their own problems. Yes. You know what I mean? And so they're always looking for someone else to help them, and then they never mature and they never grow up and learn responsibility for themselves to take care of themselves. Excellent point, Chris. Even if they did work, I don't think that principle is the biblical principle. I mean, why would you want to get rich and lay around the house and not have work? Excellent point. That's not what we're told to do. Excellent point. That's exactly right. Yeah. God's way is you work for what you earn, not some easy money thing, even if it did work. That's a very good point. You know, there is so much value for us in hard work, in doing things the, the, the right way, the diligent way, uh, you know, disciplined way. That's the best way to live. And so many of these things that are too easy are not good for us. What about 
you know, this, this, this works in lots of areas. What about easy grades? How do you get easy grades? Cheating. Cheating. Does that ever happen? All the time. What's the, why is that bad? Well, I pretty much cheated always, and now I don't know anything. <laughs> Look at Ryan! <laughs> what that you cheat yourself out of whatever it is you're trying to learn? Because you won't learn it. Um, how do you feel about yourself when you cheated your way into an A? Yeah! Like, wow! That really makes you feel good about yourself, doesn't it? You know, all you did was have enough ingenuity to manage to copy down some answers. You know, you got good eyesight, you managed to spy somebody else's test and managed to sit beside the smart kid in the class or whatever. You know, whatever it takes, or you managed to be able to write small on your hand, that's really smart. You know, uh, it, it, it doesn't give you any self-worth. So, and, and is there anything sinful about cheating? Well, it's like a form of lying. It is. If you sign your name to uh, test answers that aren't yours, sign the guy's name you got them off of. You know? uh, don't misrepresent. It's, it's still this mentality that is bad for us in principle that I want an easy way that's not diligent and disciplined. I want a good result. I don't want to pay the price. That's not good for us. That's not the right thing to do. We want easy ways. But but in the long run, that's that's a worse thing for us. Other comments and thoughts? I was going to go to some New Testament scripture again. And 2 Thessalonians 3, we see the principle of uh, verse 10, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. And, in Romans uh, 13, like 7 and 8, talks about render therefore all, all their due, and taxes being taxes are due, and 8 says they're knowing anything. And just we got all these principles about just trying to make sure that we're we're working and we're taking care of ourselves. And I mean, if, if we can help other people, we can, but don't, don't be trying to always just have other people helping you, you know what I mean? So. Yes, exactly. Good points, good, good passages. Other thoughts? Well, maybe from kind of this concept that he's been developing, you've got the next section. In some senses, these sections can be quite independent. But I think you'll see how this section kind of leads you into the thought of the next one, 6 through 11. <coughs> Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Which, having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer, and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler, and your need like an armed man. So, who, what's he recommending here? Basically. Work. Work. And uh, what's the illustration he uses at work? Ants. Ants. You ever seen ants? What impresses you about them? They're always moving. They are. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever seen an ant standing around? You know, ants are on the move. They can do what? 
ants are very busy folk. What else do you notice about ants that's impressive? Well, I hadn't thought about it until the scripture said it, but they don't have anybody to tell them what to do. They just go do it. Yeah, they don't seem to have a boss. You know? What else? If you've noticed about ants, I don't know, do you watch them very much? What do they do that's pretty impressive? They work together. Like yes. In a line. Yes, that's right. They do. They can carry incredible burdens for their body weight. Yes, absolutely. They can carry many times. I have no idea how many times. But, you know, you'll see a little bitty ant with a pretty good sized leaf on it or whatever. I mean, it's like, wow, they're tough. <laughs> you know, they really work hard. He's saying, you lazy people, you lazy son, watch the ant and work like an ant, diligently and disciplined. What is it saying when it says in verse 7, having no chief officer or ruler? We understand what that means for an ant, but what's that saying for us? Well, it's saying the ant doesn't have a, a leader, so what's the application for us? Self-motivation. Yes. You shouldn't have to wait to be told to do something. Is that a good lesson for us? You know, um, when you're young, very young, when do you pick up your toys? When your parents say, Johnny, please go pick up your toys. Well, Johnny, you pick up your toys or else I'm going to spank you. How that works, in, uh, depending on your level of uh, submissiveness, perhaps. Uh, and so you pick up your toys. But unless mommy says, go pick up your toys, you don't pick up your toys. You know, now, when you mature, theoretically, you start developing a conscience, an ethic about doing what you need to do without being told. You know, you get things done, not because you've got a boss standing over you and saying, you've got to do this, but because it needs to be done. Now, maybe you're not still playing with your toys. But what kinds of things, what kind of things even as young people, would it be good for you to do without being told to do it? Reading your Bible. Well, certainly, spiritual activities like reading your Bible and praying and things like that shouldn't be that somebody has to remind you. Do, do, do mom and dad have to tell you, now would you go read your Bible? It's time for your Bible reading time. You know, wouldn't it be much better for us to have a, a conscience about that and a discipline? I have somebody to tell me to do that. I have a responsibility before God. What other kinds of things? Okay, certainly we shouldn't have to be told that. The Bible already told us that. We ought to do that. There are things like helping around the house, like you, you know, do the dishes or you sit at the table or whatever. Okay, household activities that need to be done, pitching to do it. That's kind of unkid, isn't it? To actually do something to be helpful to, to the household activity that you're not actually told to do? Did you ever mow the yard without mom or dad saying, go mow the yard? Or did you ever, you know, I don't know, uh, straighten up the house or, or vacuum or, or whatever it was that mom and dad didn't specifically say, now, you know, Janie, would you please go do this? 
or whatever. What are other things that we ought to just have self-motivation to do, even as young people? about like our own personal hygiene. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully that's not a major issue for us. But uh, I don't know, any of you still have a mom and dad to tell you when that needs to be done. That's <laughs> uh, uh, time for deodorant, son. <laughs> I'm thinking of uh, something similar to that. But there might be more of an issue. What else should we do without having to be told? There's spiritual um, work and words. Um, I think often we think we're too young to be doing um, what we see as the big things. Um, actually being involved, being active, you know, in in worship and in, and in the community. And, Take more oh, absolutely. Yeah, trying to reach out to people, help people, teach people, involve, involve ourselves with people and so forth. Definitely. That ought to be something that somebody doesn't have to tell us. What about around the house? Well, besides household tasks, what are other things we ought to be able to do without being told? Make meals. Maybe make meals. I'm thinking a rather obvious one that you guys haven't said yet. Mm-hmm. Clean your room. You know, straighten up your stuff. You know, I don't know. How does it work if, you know, you just dump your clothes out on your floor and, you know, you just kind of leave everything sort of like that? Is there any issues with that? Nope. <laughs> Eventually it becomes rather inefficient. <laughs> You know, you enter at your own risk. <laughs> now, you know, uh, at some point, we have to say, well, you know, mommy or daddy shouldn't have to tell me I need to do these things. I do them because they need to be done. You know, I'm not a cleanliness freak or anything like that. But, I mean, there's some things that we just need to do because we need to do them. And we shouldn't have to be told. You, you have to be told when you're two or you're four or you're six. But you get to be 12 or 15 or 20. And it shouldn't be that somebody has to tell me to do these things, but I have to have a boss over me before I take care of the things that need to be done, whatever that happens to be. You can think of a whole lot more stuff. It's the principle of diligence, of discipline. If, you know, what do you do if here's a job that needs to be done and here's something fun? Which one do you do? Um. Which one should you do? Do you see how that works? Look at at something down farther. In in verses 9 and 10, I'm going to come back to 8 in a minute, but this fits. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and you'll enter poverty. Now, you know, how are we with things that need to be done, but we don't want to do them. What do we try to do with those things? Well, I'll get with it today, I'll get it tomorrow. Put it, off. put it off. How are you with putting off needed activities that you don't like to do? 
But if you put it off the first time, it's so easy to just put it off again and again and again. It never gets done. How does it make you feel after a while? Stressed. That's a great word for that. Why do you feel stressed? Because you end up doing it with more than one thing, and then you have a lot of stuff that you need. That's one thing. You end up with a mountain to do. And what, what, if you put off the things you really need to do, but you don't want to, what, do, you, do you see how that works on your uh, psyche? What happens to you? What do you start feeling? Feel less and less obligated to, to do it. Maybe, or more and more pressured to do it, and more and more. It's like, what if you, uh, what if you have this weight on you? If it's really heavy, what would you really like to do? Take it off. Take it off. Now, what if you just have to carry this weight around hour after hour, day after day? You get really tired. You get really strained and fatigued and, and we say stressed. Because you keep this weight on you and you don't get it off. If you do what you need to do, you take the weight off. You're so much lighter. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just decided I'm going to do this and get it over with? You hate it. You didn't want to do it. It would be so much more fun to have fun, but you need to get it done, and you do it. How do you feel after you get it done? Great. Yeah, great. Well, you feel so much lighter. Yeah. Wow, she's such relief. As well as kind of a sense of accomplishment and productivity. You know, you feel a lot better about yourself. It would be so much better, so much better, if we always had the mentality, you know, what I need to do over what I want to do. Get it done. I got schoolwork. But how do you feel? Well, you know, I'm, you know, I'm just really tired. You know, I just really, it's been, I've had a lot of work to do. I really need a break. You know, I'm really not in the mood. I'm not in the mindset. You know, I probably wouldn't do a very good job right now anyhow because I'm really not, you know, it. And so what do we do? We put it off, we put it off, we put it off. And then it's the night before it's due. And I have this mountain. So much better if I just get the job done. If I do the work. By inches, we become poor. A little slip, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands direct. Oh, I'm going to do this first. I'm going to do that first. I just, and we just gradually, and, and, and think about how it depresses you. You know, think about how you feel. You've got you've got this work to do. But you you say it's schoolwork. Say say you got math homework. And you know, once every month the teacher collects it. So, you know, you don't do it tonight. Because you don't feel like it. Well what what do you feel like tomorrow night? <laughs> You got double the homework. I bet you don't feel like it. What do you feel like the third night? You got triple the homework. And you start feeling more and more depressed. And you try to escape to other things so you don't have to deal with it, so you don't have to face it. And just by one night at a time, you just go down farther and farther. More depressed, more stressed, more frustrated. Always trying to escape by doing something fun. 
But you can't totally escape. It's still hanging over you. You still know it is in the back of your mind. And it just pressures you more and more. What about verse 8? What impresses you about the ant right there? summer to provide for the winter. We're bad, it's kind of along the lines of what we're saying. We're bad about if it doesn't have to be done right now, I'll put it off. But it's going to need to be done for then and you've got to do it now. Not putting things off. Thinking ahead, getting things done ahead of time. Man, do you see how the ant's really wise? And that we can learn a lot from ants. It's really practical, I think, for all of us, young people or adults. What comments and thoughts do you have on this? Right. Think about it. Really work on this. I think, you know, these two sections are just very helpful to us and very practical principles. Like 12 to 19. Um, 
And, and what happens to this worthless, wicked man in verse 15? It's going to be bad. It's just going to come upon him suddenly, broken, no healing. Don't use the parts of your body for wickedness. That's his point. You see the same thing in 16 and 19. Six things the Lord hates, even seven. He uses that formula a lot. You know, six things are bad. Here's a seventh. You know, it's the complete, you know, uh, anatomy of wickedness. Body members uh, used in the service of wrongdoing. Haughty eyes. Um, what, what does haughty mean? Uh, proud. A superior attitude. You know, those are terrible things. You start with pride. What do the Beatitudes start with? Poor in spirit. Poor spirit. Humility. You know, God's man starts with humility. The devil's person starts with that proud, arrogant look. Um, there's probably no uh, vice more opposed to wisdom than what pride is. And then a lying tongue. Honesty is critical in the service to God. Hands that shed in some blood. Um... There's a lot of illustrations of that in our day. What about abortion? Wouldn't that fit that category? Uh, there's a lot of other ways of doing that, obviously. Um, a heart that devises wicked plans. Uh, we'll look, notice in a minute how these connect together. But, but all of this stems from the heart. Feet that run rapidly to evil. You know, they, some people just want to do wrong. They can't wait to get there. A false witness who utters lies. You know, it's so important that the witness be honest or an innocent person may be convicted. So, bearing false witness is even one of the Ten Commandments. Um, and one who spreads strife among brothers, who, who creates uh, quarreling, fighting among brethren. Now, did you notice the connection of these in these seven things? Uh, some of them are easier to see than others. But look at verse. Uh, look at number two and number six in that list of seven. What do number two and six have in common? Lying. Lying. Look at number three and five. What body parts do you have? Hands and feet. What do you have as number four in the dead middle? The heart, which is kind of the inner core of this. All evil springs from the heart. Maybe a little more difficult to see a connection between 1 and 7, but pride certainly leads to strife. So maybe maybe there's a, a connection there as well. These are just various things he mentions briefly. Don't use your body for sin. Comments and questions on those things. I notice that, like, like you said, the phrase, phraseology he uses in verse 16, that seems to be somewhat common. I know Solomon uses something like that later. He says, you know, three things I can't understand, even a fourth. And even in Job, they mention something like that. And uh, what I've understood that to be is just, you know, well, this list is not exhaustive. And, you know, it could be including inclusive of other things, too, not just these six or seven things. 
Yes, certainly that's true. Um, there's several ways to look at that, but that's certainly true. Other thoughts? I had another wisdom lesson, one that he, he has already mentioned a couple of times, and uh, we won't hear the last of it in this chapter either. But we start with kind of an introduction to his lesson, 20 to 24. My son, observe the commandment of your father, and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Find them continually on your heart, tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is light. And reproof through discipline are the way of life. To keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. I want you to notice something here. Basically, what's he talking about in this section? Warning against adultery. But I'm saying from 20 to 24. What's. Yes. Parental commands, parental teaching, and how you ought to follow this valuable teaching from the parents. That's the basic idea, right? Now I want you to look at some things that are interesting about that. For example, verse 21. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. Does that remind you of anything? Deuteronomy 6. Yes. In Deuteronomy 6, he says, uh, you know, in verse uh, 8, you shall bind them as sign on your hands, they shall be as frontals on your forehead, you'll write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. But in Deuteronomy 6, what was he talking about that you were supposed to do that way? God's commands. Just like he says that God's commands are supposed to be bound around us, here it talks about the parents' commands supposed to be done that way. There's several passages, by the way, where it says that about God's commands, not just Deuteronomy 6, but that's a good one. What about verse 22? When you walk about, they'll guide you. When you sleep, they'll watch over you. When you awake, they'll talk to you. Does that remind you of anything? Shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, when you rise up. That's also, also Deuteronomy 6, talking about God's word. That's supposed to be guiding you no matter what you do. What about verse 23? For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is a light. Does that remind you of anything? Psalm 119, 105, talking about what? Thy word. Is it coincidental that the same things he tells about parents' commands are what he tells about God's word? Is that just a coincidence? The point is, what the parents are supposed to be teaching is God's word. That what, When Solomon is instructing his son here, He's not giving him lessons in, you know, sociology and psychology and philosophy and things like that. He's teaching God's wisdom. The idea of the parental instruction, they're teaching God's teachings. 
That's what they're supposed to be guided by. And so the very same things that you say about the Word of God, you say about the parental teaching of the Word of God. I think that's a helpful thing to look at. Now, you think you, you then think about the parental instruction, God's Word. Look at what he says about it in, in these passages. These are the things that are supposed to be uh, guiding us and directing us and even sort of beautifying us. You know, uh, what do people often tie around their necks? Jewelry. Jewelry of some sort, right? Pretty common place to wear something that essentially makes a person look better, beautifies them, whatever. Well, what's supposed to be our ornament? What's supposed to make us beautiful? Hey, God's Word. Parental teachings. That's what's supposed to really, that's what we need to focus on to guide us and to beautify us and so forth. And in this particular passage in verse 24, what is the specific thing that the parental teaching is supposed to keep us away from? strange woman. Some of your translations say strange woman. Foreign woman, something like that. The woman you're not married to. That's the point. Keeping you away from the smooth tongue of this woman. Because as we've talked about before, when it comes to adultery, it usually starts with what's said. As she begins to flatter and flirt and, you know, invite and maybe be sort of bold and brazen in what she says and kind of lead the guy on and into this relationship. Parental teaching, if we keep it, will keep us away from that kind of woman. Or God's teaching keeps us away from that kind of woman. And that leads him into the next section. Do you have comments and questions through verse 24? I just I hear a lot of, I just heard a lot of these stories where, I, I think we talked about this a little bit last month too, though, you know about, but I mean, in the workplace or something, if, if a guy's, I guess it's the other way too, but usually, you know, if a guy's marriage isn't going well and you got a woman at work that, it is easy on the eyes anyway, and she's and she's telling you about how good you are, and she's just flattering you. And I mean, and that that's where it just guys let their guard down. You know what I mean? And we we're not focused on the bigger picture and what we're supposed to be doing, and we just allow ourselves to start talking to that girl. And then yeah, and that's that's just the kind of person that New King James straight up calls her evil, and verse 24 says evil woman, and I mean it's just flattering tone. So you know, we just got to make sure that we're got our head in the right place, you know, we, know who we're talking, we need to be talking to our wife about our problems, not enough woman. Well, you know, we did talk about this last month. Why did we talk about it last month? That's exactly right. Um, sometimes we, uh, you know, don't like repetition, but usually repeated teaching is for a purpose. I suspect Solomon talks about this so much because we need it so much. So I think in this case, the repetition is good. That's exactly the thing to guard against. You know, this evil never looks evil at first. 
divorced. So you've got this girl at work, and she's just a really nice person, and she's, uh, you know, all this sort of stuff. And she just starts telling you about how she really appreciates you, she respects you, she trusts you, she finds you so compassionate, so understanding, so helpful, so whatever and whatever and whatever. And she just starts telling you all this stuff. And well, I mean, you know who doesn't like to hear that about themselves? And she really kind of understands you, you know. I mean, your wife maybe doesn't quite, but, but she seems to always be kind of in tune with you. And she, she can tell when you're down. And she's really compassionate. She's caring. She's kind and, and all this sort of stuff. And, and, you know, and then she starts telling you about her horrible husband. And, you know, you feel so sorry for her because she's going through so much. And you try to, you know, show her that she's really, you know, a nice person and she's desirable and this, that, and the other. And it all started with that, that speech. And it wasn't speech that sounded bad. You know, it wasn't like she was starting with some, well, you know, hey, let's spend the night together, you know, get a motel room or something. That's not what she starts at all. You know, it's so innocent. It's so, you know, and, and you're just trying to be helpful at first. And, you know, I don't know. It, it, it appeals to your pride. It goes to your ego. That's a big thing. But otherwise, it seems pretty good. And, but that's what he's warning about. That's where the wisdom comes in to avoid that beginning. You just have to be really careful. You know, married guys, you just kind of develop, you cannot develop that kind of relationship with a woman. You can't have this, you know, kind of special understanding, you know. We really, we're soulmates, you know, we really understand each other. We really have this special connection. You can't do that. That's just not right. You don't, you don't have that anymore. You might not be at work, it might be on the internet. You know, you develop this special, you know, just understand. You can't go there. Might be with a sister church. You can't do that. You've got to be very wise and very careful about maintaining almost a professional distance. Because that those first you know, conversations just lead to the open door. All right? Comments or questions through 24? <coughs> 25 to 35. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her idols. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom, and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals, and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes in into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. People do not despise a thief if he steals, a, if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have, he may have to give up all the substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no re- recompense, nor will he be appeased, though he gives any gifts. Really practical principles here. And some really strong warnings. In 25, what do you have to watch? Two things. 
says you have to watch her. You have to be careful about her looks and you know her captivating you visually. And what else do you have to watch out for? Make sure you don't get emotionally attached. Yes. Desiring her beauty in your heart. You start developing this heart attachment. This this desire for her in your heart. And the visual. You know, you uh, let her capture you with her eyelids. You know, you just start being attracted to her. You like her looks. And you want her. Now, has anybody ever uh, struggled with these kinds of things because of their eyes? Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, <laughs> think about biblically. Uh, Solomon is in existence because of David's sin in this regard. Yeah. Yeah, in some ways that's right. Probably would never marry Bathsheba if it hadn't been for all that he'd done. So yeah, it's exactly right. David started out by looking... <coughs> You know, so much desire comes into the heart through our eyes. You know, and and always, sin begins with the wrong desire that we put into action. So we've got to watch that desire. We've got to watch looking. Uh, I I don't, uh, you know, if I could just preach, you know, every time we were together about some of these things, I'd probably be just as productive. You know, especially people listen. You know, guys, we have to watch looking. You know, there's some things we shouldn't see. You know, and girls aren't very careful about what they wear and things like that. We've got to police our eyes. We cannot start visually exploiting what we see that is wrong that will lead us to other things. And I just continually am motivated to, I don't know, plead, beg, and uh, yell about the abuse of the internet. That has got to stop. That form of visual heart pollution is horrible. And it is destroying all kinds of people. And I want you to think, most of you are young, I want you to think about where I'm at in talking to people. And I'm going to just kind of, you know, issues, talk about some things in, in vague terms, you know, because uh, these things are recorded and go all over the place. So, but, but let me tell you about the kind of thing that happens. You're a guy. And you start, you know, and you've done this for a while, abusing the internet, you know, seeing all kinds of garbage that you shouldn't see. And you try to stop, but you don't. And you're going to stop, but you don't. And all this kind of stuff. Well, where does that lead to? Well, one of these days you can marry. And uh, did you think that was going to stop this? I wish it would. But it doesn't. So now you're married. And you're doing these things. And she finds out about it. What does that do to a wife? When she finds out from her perspective that she's not satisfying her husband. And that he needs something else. And, wow, that's devastating. 
lights. Now, what about this one? You filled your mind with the garbage, and so then you have a life. But guess what? When you're with her, you're thinking about all these images you see. You're practically committing adultery every time you're with her. It just destroys your ability to think straight and to have a pure relationship. You know, you can't indulge in sin and it not corrupt you and hurt you. It's not, you know, we, we talk about these victimless crimes. You know, it seems like that's a victimless crime. It's just out there on the internet. You look at it, it's not going to change anything. So it doesn't really hurt anybody. That's the way it seems to us. You know, it's not obvious nobody ever know anyway, because you raised the history and all that kind of photo. But but the truth is, there are always consequences to sin. And and these kinds of sins have really devastating consequences. They're extremely addictive. And and, and, and let me go on more with you. You know, the addictive nature of a lot of kinds of, you know, sensual sins like this makes it very difficult to get out of. Let me give you a scenario. You know, a lot of this kind of stuff is a lot like drugs or alcohol. You ever dealt with an alcoholic? You know, if it's an alcoholic, there are certain triggers. Stress. Boredom. You know, frustration. Things like that. And when they feel it, what do they do? Well, for the last however many years, the bottle, the bottle, the bottle. Well, same thing happens with these kind of things. You know, if you're hooked into this kind of stuff, what triggers you? Anything that makes you want to escape. So, you're frustrated. You're depressed. You're stressed. You're hurt. You're bored. What do you, what's the automatic connection you make that triggers the wrong thing? You start looking for some kind of fulfillment. And it can even get to the point, you know, for an alcoholic, there's a little bit of a high when you get in your car to head to the bar. You haven't even gotten to alcohol yet, but it's just the connection of the, of the, the, how you dealt with that. Same thing happens. You know, going over and turning the computer on, you know, already starts the, the brain chemistry. It becomes an addictive cycle. What do you have to do with those things? Stop. You know, it's so much that we often, we don't stop. What do we do? I want to do better. You know, I'm going to, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm this and that and the other. I'm doing better. You know, and, and, you know, in my situation, I talk to guys and I'm like, well, how are you doing with that? Well, I'm doing a lot better. Ah, and I, I used to have a problem with that. Well, you know what my next question always is when somebody used to have a problem with that? When's the last time? Two days ago. <laughs> you know, that sort of stuff. Yesterday, this morning, you know, whatever. So I, I'm, I think with all these kind of things, and one thing feeds another. It's not, you know, internet is probably the most pervasive, but it's all the stuff. 
It's the movies we shouldn't see, the TV we shouldn't see, it's the magazines we shouldn't look at, it's, it's whatever. I mean, it's the whole range. It's the girls we shouldn't look at and all that. And it's like, you know, it all goes together. If you're going to fire, you want to put the fire out, what do you do? Well, add more logs, man. Go out more gasoline. That'll stop it. You know, you stop it because you cut it off and you cut off everything that feeds it. You know, we're all into this gradual. If, if you had a dog and you wanted to cut the tail off, what's the best way to do it? A sliver at a time? You know, you want to be merciful to the dogs so you're not going to cut the whole thing off at once? You know, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? You know, cut the thing off and be done with it. And that's exactly what we've got to do with these things. We cut them off. It's over. And we don't go back. Now that is a day at a time back. It may require accountability. It requires a lot of prayer. It requires a lot of filling our life back up with the right stuff. But there has to be the determination that we follow through with that we can go there. And, and, you know, when you're in my situation where I just talk to so many people, it just becomes almost a crusade for me to say those things because I don't want to be talking to more wives whose husbands are addicted and, and more guys whose lives are perverted because they were always going to do better and they never change. That gave me an opportunity to say that. Thank you for listening. Anybody want to say something about that? Right. You know, if we can't, if guys can't stop doing these things with just knowing that God is watching us and knowing that we have a relationship with God, why would we think that a relationship with women in marriage would stop that? You know what I mean? If we're, we're putting God first and, we, and we're not even stopping ourselves knowing that He's always with us and watching us, why would but, and I'd like to just open or have this question just for the ladies to answer, but uh, I found it just encouraging uh, in some things. When, when I talk to my sisters and they say how they would feel if they knew that their husband was doing these things, and uh, I've talked to sisters about this before, and for, I forgot, I, I always forget these things get recorded and stuff, I forgot anybody mentioned that. So just for anyone here, people listening and the recording, if women, I don't know, either married or going to get married, if you could say, like, how do you feel, you know, if you found out that your husband was thinking about other girls or looking at other girls, you know what I'm saying? And, and that, that can be encouraging the guys to not do that. It's a betrayal, don't you think? Mm-hmm. I mean, I get pretty much universal bonds. I mean, yeah. I like, put yourself in their position. You know, that's a, that's a really horrible thing. And, uh, Sorry, uh, I was reading a book called The Mark of a Man by Elizabeth Elliot, and one of her little lessons in there, I thought it was really interesting the way she put it. She said, anyone who says that I'm working on a particular sin or whatever, it really means that they're just delaying obedience. And I thought that, you know, that's basically what you're talking about, you know. You know, instead of looking on the internet every day, you know, I'm only cut it down to twice a week, you know. Like, you know, and, and you think about, you know, substitute that for another sin, you know, like a serial killer. Well, how you doing? I'm doing great. I've only killed one person this week, so far. I'm doing better. You know? like, no, you just stop right then, you know. We're killing ourselves as we're looking at that, whatever we do. And so we just got to be aware of that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's one of those deals where, 
you know, it really disturbs our way of thinking. Because, you know, what did God give women for? What was the original purpose? To be a helper. To be a helper, companion. Now, you look at these images on the internet. How do you see a woman on the internet? An object, a thing, a body, a set of physical attributes. You don't see them as a person, a companion. Starting with somebody just recently. We're talking about how this is kind of interesting how this works. I think it's really common. Uh, this is somebody who's not married um, and said, you know, he said he's starting to develop some friendships with girls. And that's actually making him think more because he's seeing them differently. You know, when your, your image of girls is the internet, you're not seeing those people. You're seeing those things. You're not seeing them the way God created them. So we've really got to see what a profound effect doing the wrong thing has on our whole outlook. And just stop and change. No matter what it takes. You know, and it just, uh, I think one of the things that is most shocking to me is somebody who says, I want to change. Well, you know, there's some basic things you can do. If you can't change, then stay on the internet. Go on. Go back. It's like, wow. You know, every time you go into Walmart, you shoplift. So what do you do? You know, go to Walmart. You know, hello. I mean, every time you go to the bar, you get drunk. What do you do? You don't go to the bar. We can stop these things if we want to. I think that brings up a really interesting point. We put ourselves in environments where it's near impossible to not say. I've talked to brethren before. Well, <coughs> well, they were inviting me to go to Holiday World with them. And I was like, yeah, that sounds fun as long as we you know, steer clear of the water park. And I was expecting him to say, well, of course. Well, he says, no, that's the best part. <laughs> okay. Great. You know, and it's like, and then he starts getting on me, well, you just need to watch your eyes more. You need to stop. <laughs> 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 yeah. So I'm supposed to go in that kind of environment and be okay. And we do that to ourselves. We put ourselves in these environments where all it takes is just one tiny slip and we'll be off the deep end. And we just need to stay away from the edge. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, water parks and beaches, most of them, you know, public kinds, and public swimming pools and things like that, those are great places to be virtuous and righteous, right? I mean, you know, it's like, wow! Why would we even consider those kinds of things? You know, we're probably going to stumble ourselves, and if nothing else, we'll be a stumbling block. You know, if we're uh, normally attired and so forth, we just have to avoid that. I mean, that's just not, those aren't places Christians can go. It's, it's just exactly like, you know, talking to a Christian, and, well, you know, let's go to this bar. What would you think if you heard a Christian say, well, this is a fun bar to go to. You know, let's go to this nightclub. You know, would that, would that raise some eyebrows? You know, he's like, hmm. You know, what if, what if you knew an elder that was frequenting the nightclub? 
You know, it'd be kind of horrifying, wouldn't it? What about going to the, the public beaches, public swimming pools, you know, water parks and things like that? Why wouldn't we see that the same way? You know, so I'm, you know, blind people can probably go there and be okay, but you know, for most of us, that's not a good spot. You know? Right? Yeah, just to put scripture on it, uh, you're like me, just putting scripture with the voice house. Yeah, I'm not a bad idea. I mean, I agree with everything you're saying. Go ahead. But, but Matt, in Matthew 5, you know, 29 and 30, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And guess what I mean? If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. You know what I mean? If we, and that just, just goes along with what you're saying. If you're, if you're around something, you're something don't go there. You get rid of it. You know what I mean? You you just you get rid of it. It's if, if, if you go by some place and it was maybe tempting when you drive by the place to go and do some whatever. Maybe you take a different route. I've had to do that before with different things. I just I don't care. Waste a little bit more gas. You know what I mean? You you, you stay away from the things that are going to separate you from your God. And that's exactly what he's saying here. Look at verse 26. On account of a heart, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. An adulteress hunts for the precious life. It costs you dearly. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Isn't that exactly what you're saying? You can't play around with sin and it not have an effect on you. So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Don't think you'll get by with it. Don't think it won't hurt you. You know, you mess around with fire, and it's going to burn you, and you wish you hadn't. Now, so what are the consequences to have an affair with your neighbor's wife? I mean, you know, it's going to be fine. David and Bathsheba, she purified herself and went home, and everything's wonderful. Well, what he says is, this is a cool analogy. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's hungry. You know, how do you see a hungry thief? Do you have some understanding of why they'd steal? Would you have some, I don't know sympathy is the right word, but some comprehension of the reason for what happens? When he's found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance to his house. You know, he's still got to pay back sevenfold, even though you understand why he would have done it. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find. His reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man. He will not spare the day of sin. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied through you, though you give it many gifts. And the thing of it is, even though you understand a thief, he has to pay. If, it's, if he's hungry. What about you steal some guy's wife? Just what do you do to pay off a jealous husband? I know a guy who's paralyzed. Because he got shot because he's messing around with some guy's wife. You know, he's saying, you get consequences that are terrible. You start doing that kind of stuff. Even the hungry thief has to pay. How much more 
the guy who's messing around with somebody's wife. You don't do that. It's not yours. You, you can't do that. Just really strong language. And strong language, as you always see in problems, you've got to think about the consequences. What we do affects things. And that's what we've been saying in this whole study. Do you have further comments and questions? Um, between a married couple, too, I mean, they could be uh, com- completely clean as in, like, disease-free, but if a, if a husband, you know, cheats on his wife with someone, and maybe not know if she has an STD or something, too, that can bring, that can be everlasting consequences to where now they have to deal with that in, in his marriage and stuff, and so that can, it's just one of those things where, uh, just a, a sin, the consequence of a sin, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we just, you know, we don't think about the consequences when we're having the quote-unquote fun. But it makes no sense to start down a road when you have no idea if it's going to end you in destruction or not. All right, very good. Thank you for uh, your attention and all that. Why don't we take a break and we'll work on chapter 7.